And I'm not saying this to like be awesome, but you know, I was making $250,000 a year, not including bonuses at a big, huge, fancy law firm and thriving there. So for me to like be able to throw that to the wind and say, I'm going to try to run this gym and this like stretching website was a big risk. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I'm stoked you've decided to join me on this journey to bring about a massive and positive change in the lives of others. Every week, you're going to join me behind closed doors, where I will introduce you to entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators from a variety of industries to learn how their contributions are impacting the lives of others and how they are having a game-changing impact in the world. Thanks for investing your time with me today. Now, Brace for Impact. You and I are a lot alike. We're busy and sometimes we get stuck and we need tools to help us get unstuck. And this is why I'm such a huge fan of the Unstuck app. And you can go back and listen to episode one to hear why. But today I'm even more pumped because the Unstuck team has just launched an online platform called Life Courses to help us make a change in our lives by first helping us understand what's holding us back and then helping design a personalized action plan for moving forward. I just started the first Life Course myself and it's a high impact, awesome experience, something you and I can do together. I know what you're saying, I'm too busy and still Life Courses is designed specifically for busy people like you and me, and you're worth it, I'm worth it. So head over to unstuck.com forward slash impact and sign up today. I'd love to hear back from you. Send me your stories via email at info at theimpactentrepreneur.net or the Impact Entrepreneur Show Facebook page. And of course, we will link to all of this awesomeness in the show notes. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I'm your host, Mike Flynn. Last week, we heard from Super Bowl champion AJ Hawk, and round two of the Champions Mindset series is with Juliet Starrett. Juliet is an attorney and an entrepreneur. She is co founder and CEO of San Francisco CrossFit, one of the first 50 CrossFit affiliates in the world. She also is the CEO of MobilityWad.com, which has revolutionized how athletes think about human movement and athletic performance, and is co-founder of StandUpKids.org. Before turning her attention to Mobility Wad and San Francisco CrossFit full-time, Juliet had a successful career as an attorney, practicing complex commercial litigation at Reed Smith for nearly eight years. A lifelong athlete, Juliet rode in high school, was on the UC Berkeley crew team, and went on to paddle for the U.S. Women's Extreme Whitewater Team from 1997 to 2000, winning not one, but two world championships and five national titles. In 2007, Juliet won the prestigious Jefferson Award for public service in connection with her work with Girl Ventures, a girl empowerment organization, and as co-founder of Liquid, a kayaking camp for kids with HIV. When she is not busy running two businesses and StandUpKids.org, Juliet enjoys hanging out with her husband, Kelly, and their two daughters, Georgia and Caroline, reading, listening to music, crossfitting, 
mountain biking, paddling, skiing, camping, playing outdoors, and of course, listening to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. And today, Juliet shares how to prepare for any challenge we face in life, how her mindset helped her adapt and overcome physical setbacks that basically required her to start over. And she provides some advice on how you and I can tap into the champion's mindset. So don't be a podcast junkie, bust out your pen and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Juliet Storet, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to have you. You're going to be part of our Champions Mindset Series. Thank you so much for having me. You are very welcome. Well, before we got started, you were saying, as we were doing that sound check and all that stuff, that you had a funny story about a microphone. So, Okay, well, this... So, way back in the dawn of time, I spent one year being a second grade teacher. It was actually while I was still training as a professional whitewater athlete. And during my off-season, I started as a sub and ended up taking over a second grade class for an entire year. It was in downtown Oakland, full urban, all Chinese kids. And I spent like four months of my year prepping these kids up for this big show where we were singing all these songs from Annie. And I had like my prize, number one, most awesome singing kid. And he goes up there and he's doing his Annie singing solo and he's just like crushing it. And I couldn't be more proud. I'm like, yes, maybe teaching is going to be my gig. And then halfway through the song, he stops and he puts his lips on the microphone like this. And then he starts, and I'm like putting my lips on the microphone and he starts going like this around the side of the microphone with his lips. And he feels the microphone with his lips, like the, the like sponge part for those of you listening, like is feeling it with his lips. And he feels, he literally feels the microphone for like a minute. There's like a total pause. The audience is like on the edge of their chair. Like, what do we do here? I almost peed my pants laughing because it was like the funniest thing I've ever seen. And then like something in his brain just like tripped and he picked the song back up and like crushed it and finished it. So every time I hold a microphone like this with a sponge on the end, I think of that kid like massaging the sponge microphone with his lips. Anyway, that is that's hilarious. so random, but... That's what I think about. That's your second grade substitute teacher moment. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and you're like, this is not for me. And that's me. when I knew that I was not a good teacher candidate. <laughs> <laughs> we are really excited to have you on the show. This, this is, uh, you know, we interviewed Kelly and that was a, an amazing uh, interview. And he talked a lot about you in that interview and, and your guys' journey as entrepreneurs kicking things off. And, and uh, when I decided to do the Champions Mindset series, I emailed him and I'm like, I got to, I want to talk to Juliet and I want to. And who else? Because I need some girl power because I got a bunch of dudes. Bunch of boys, bunch of boys. Bunch of dudes. And I want to make sure that we, you know, we, we reach cr- the spectrum, you know, of people. So I always kick things off uh, without the story typically. But I, the first question is if you could pick any superpower, what would it be and how would you use it? And as I said earlier, you can't use sleep because that's what Kelly chose. That's what Kelly okay, chose. So before I answer your question, I have to comment on Kelly choosing sleep, which I thought was funny when you sent me the email because Kelly, it's been an ongoing joke. He has this thing that we call the gift and the gift, and I don't know if you have it, but probably some of your listeners do, but the gift is the ability to fall asleep like at any given point, at any time, no matter what. You could lay Kelly down on a bed of nails in a crowded room and he could fall asleep at any time. We call it the gift. So when I saw that he'd chosen sleep, I was like, dude, he already <laughs> has that superpower. So why he chose that as his superpower is beyond That's me. That's funny. Because in our family, we don't call it a superpower we, and we call it the gift and he has the gift and I don't have the gift. So so that's a, uh, I digress. Um, I think for me, the superpower that I would choose would be like 
plastic woman, flexi woman or something, because, you know, even though I am the co-purveyor of Mobility Wad with Kelly, um, my biggest athletic limitation has always been my mobility. And so for me, I think if I could add like the flexiest, super flexi, superhero flexible body to my athletic repertoire, I could be in a different league. That's, yeah, that, that's so true. I mean, my mobility is definitely my, my issue. And that's why, that's why, I, you know, actually one of my CrossFit coaches told me about Kelly. I started watching the videos and that's how I learned about Kelly. And that's how we got here today, et cetera, you know? Yeah, so, so for me, man, it would be great if I was like, you know, I think there was a 70s superhero that was like, you know, yeah, yeah. Made of plastic. Well, or... there's, isn't, isn't uh, the, um, Mrs. Incredible, like the cartoon, wasn't she the stretchy one? I think she was yeah, the stretchy one. Yeah, she is one. the stretchy one, yeah. yeah and and yeah. by the way, uh, speaking of Kelly, I tell him every year he should be Mr. Incredible for um, oh, Halloween. Totally. And his response every time is like, when he's fat or when he's fit. <laughs> and I'm always like, come on now. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, dude, Kelly's a beast. He could, he could, he's, he's the fit Mr. Yeah, Incredible. can you see him in like the full red, like unisuit, not Costume. only does he need to do that, but he actually, you guys need to have a wad where he's dressed up as <laughs> Mr. Incredible. That would be awesome. That would be pretty awesome. Yeah, we'd have to get it on film. So one, one of the things about superpowers is that not only is it fun to think about, but it's something that we can also use and apply in our life. And not only are you a, a championship level athlete and an attorney, but you're also an entrepreneur. So how can we as entrepreneurs take that desire to be flexible and apply that in our journeys as entrepreneurs? Well, I mean, I think that flexibility in terms of not actual physical flexibility, but mental flexibility, I think is the most critical thing about all those things. I mean, you know, when I was a whitewater paddler, you know, it's not just a like a single sport where you run in a straight line. You know, it's, you're out in nature. There is, you can't expect what's going to come to you. You can plan as much as you want, but you know, you're going through these class five rapids that are constantly changing on a moment's notice. And so you've got to be able to quickly be flexible and adapt. And the same thing is true, honestly, being an attorney and especially being an entrepreneur. I mean, you know, we're in this, what we feel like is this really crazy emerging field of health and fitness. And just to see what's happened in the industry from when we started in 2003 to now, and, you know, how many people are involved and how sophisticated it's gotten that, you know, it's really important that we're flexible and be willing to kind of change where we're going with our business decisions or change what we're doing with our content. Um, So for me, it's everything. Yeah, no, that, and things have definitely, I mean, just in the short period of time, just it ex, is it's mind boggling. It's yeah. crazy. It's yeah. crazy. And it's a good, it's a good sign that people are investing in that. And I actually just wrote an article that I'm trying to get published in Entrepreneur about um, two lessons that, that entrepreneurs can take away from CrossFit. And what were they? They are number one, the power of vision, and number two, the power of community, which is huge. You know, and we'll just have to wait for My everybody. My friend Allison Belger wrote the book, The Power of Community. Oh. I don't know if you've seen it. Ooh, no. Yeah, it's all about the power of the CrossFit community. Ooh, that's you cool. You should check it out. Yeah. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll talk. It's probably five years old, but um, yeah. they she owned, she and her husband own three CrossFits up in Marin County. And okay. you know, she had, was obviously very impacted from a very early stage with the community element. So you've been surrounded by coaches basically your whole life, not only as an athlete, but you also... Uh, are a coach yourself, but do you have uh, an example or a story of a mentor or a coach who significantly impacted and influenced your outlook and approach to things? 
Yeah, I had a, I, before I was a, a professional whitewater paddler, I was a rower. So I rowed in high school and then uh, in college at UC Berkeley. And my freshman year coach was a woman named Jenny Hale. And in retrospect, I think I thought she was like 30 years older than us um, when I was 18 years old. And I think maybe she was like 27 while we were 18, but because she was sort of an authority figure for us. We thought that she was, you know, 45 or 55 years old. But we had so much massive respect and love for her as a coach that we were willing to just go beyond um, to try to support her and try to do good by her. Mm -hmm. Um, And she had these exceptionally high standards, but she somehow was able to, um, you know, she created these expectations and standards in a very loving, supportive way. Um, So she was not a hard ass, but we also knew that, you know, we needed to show up and run 50 stadiums and lift weights and train twice a day. And we needed to show up and be awesome on a daily basis. And that that was her expectation. But somehow she didn't do it in like a tyrannical, mean kind of coach way. Like she did it in a very loving, supportive way. And man, we bought in. Like we would have like rode off of a cliff for that woman. Hmm. Um, she was so influential to me. I, I always talk about how preparation is the bridge between expectations and reality. So can you tell us like the expectations that she laid out for you and your willingness to fully commit to that helped you, you know, develop a mindset that, that ended up enabling you to become the champion that you are? Yeah, you know, she, a couple key things, and I think I've taken, I've really taken these in my whole life. I mean, really simple things, but we were expected to show up not only on time, but like showing up on time was late. So if practice was at four o'clock, we needed to be there at 3.45. And, you know, this is a big deal in rowing because you're in college and you have two-a-days and one of your two-a-days is at 5.30 in the morning. So if practice is at 5.30, that means you need to show up at 5.15. So this is like a big commitment. So simple things like showing up on time and also, you know, doing your own homework, you know, showing up, having eaten, having brought brought a snack with you, having brought water, you know, not, not acting like a child thinking that your mom's going to show up and hand you your water bottle and bring you your snack that, you know, you need to take care of your own well-being and show up ready to play or row. And also once we were on the water or in the training facility, like we needed to be giving it. And, you know, she would kick kids out of practice, actually, who just obviously showed up and they were apathetic or they'd stayed up till two o'clock in the morning. And we actually saw this at the beginning with the freshman rowers. You know, freshman rowers try to push the limits. It's like they're the first time they're out of the house. They think, oh, okay, I can like stay up till 2 a.m. with all the rest of the kids in my dorm and still show up and deliver for a 5.15 practice. And then by like October, they implode because they're, you know, they've been trying to operate on like three or four hours of night sleep, you know, and then she sees it, you're out of practice. Um, And so it's just this high expectation of showing up, being efficient, being prepared, you know, giving your all while you're on the water or training off the water and, you know, just being a pro. Like she expected us to be pros and it didn't matter that we were kids, which we basically were. She wanted us to be pros. And she, she set the level and you guys rose to it. We rose to the level. And what's, what's interesting too about this is that in the world today, we hear often the phrase that don't sweat the small stuff, right? But the devil is in the details, right? And, and that, is the, that, that is that game changer. Yeah, and I am someone who sweats the small stuff. <laughs> I've been told. And it goes... Uh, through all things, you know, like one of my biggest pet peeves is if you email me and you've never emailed me before and you don't start with like, hello, Juliet, comma, 
Thank you sincerely, Michael. I mean, people do this to me all the time. Like it boggles my mind. You did great, but it boggles my mind. You don't know me, you know, and if you don't know me, it means we need to have a formal introduction. And at a minimum, you need to like write an email to me. You don't just start with no like salutation launching into what, I mean, if you send me an email like that, delete, you know, like no way, like people need to sweat the small stuff. Like they need to show up on time. They need to send professional emails. They got to be pro in everything. Well, that probably teed you up not only to be successful as a championship level athlete, but everywhere in life afterwards, as you were kind of were just Yeah, like you got to make your bed in the morning. You got to make your bed in the morning, you know, because that sets the tone for how your whole day is going to be. Right. Right. It's, it's one goal accomplished. Right. You've done one thing. You've gotten up and you've made your bed and made your coffee and like you're already on like pro level, yeah. not like slacker level. <laughs> There's this great uh, commencement speech that was given by this admiral in the Navy, a former uh, Navy SEAL commander, right? you know, but he ended up being an admiral. And he, at, at the University of Texas, he gave this commencement speech and he talked about the importance of making up your bed. Yes. And how that sets the tone. Yeah, it like as a thing. It bothers me. I'm always like, I make my kids make their bed. So you know, you're just I, like an admiral. And so I, you should <laughs> have everybody call you admiral. Yeah. Well, you know, Kelly Admiral does, J-Star. One of Kelly's uh, loving nicknames for me is the Little Hitler, um, which is a horrible and mean nickname. But, um, you know, it is what it is. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> when you hear the phrase <laughs> champion's mindset, what comes to mind? God, I guess it's two things. Can I have two things? You can have two. Okay, two things. I think the first thing is uh, someone who's willing to take risks. And then I would say the second thing is someone who responds well to adversity. Okay. Those would be the two big things that would come to mind in a champion's mindset. We're going to talk about adversity in a minute, but why don't you elaborate a little bit more about risk? Kelly and I have talked actually quite a bit about this in other podcasts, but when we've, you know, looked at our sort of current situation as entrepreneurs and both of us having left these really stable sort of normal jobs to do this path and try our luck in this health and fitness entrepreneur world, we've sort of self-reflected and thought, you know, what was it that created an environment where we both felt like we could leave this comfort zone of like very good, very well-paying jobs and just try this. And what we've concluded is that we both from really early ages, especially with all of our, you know, extreme whitewater paddling, got really comfortable taking a lot of physical risk. um, And that that's has now translated into being able to take business risk or personal risk from a business standpoint, you know, because we're both in on this, right? Like a lot of entrepreneurs, we know they have like one spouse still has like their regular job and keeps their like normal health insurance. And then the other spouse is an entrepreneur. You know, we're pretty unique in that. Like we both abandoned, like I abandoned and I'm not saying this to like be awesome, but you know, I was making $250,000 a year, not including bonuses at a big, huge fancy law firm and thriving there. So for me to like be able to throw that to the wind and say, I'm going to try to run this gym and this like stretching website was a big risk for sure. And especially because we had two kids at that point. So we're, you know, we weren't just like 25 year olds. So I think if I look back on it, I think for whatever reason, we both from early points in our life felt comfortable taking risk. And we sort of realized that in our whitewater paddling universes. And then that has really paid dividends in terms of how we could, we could feel like we could take risks in business with our life later on. Were you always that way, even like as a little kid in terms of risk, or is that something that was kind of developed in you as an athlete? 
You know, I think it was developed. I mean, I wasn't, I don't recall being like a kid who was always pushing the limits and, you know, trying to like jump off cliffs and climb trees. And, you know, I was certainly a very active uh, athletic kid. You know, I look at our littlest daughter, Caroline, who's eight years old, and she is that kid who needs to like run everywhere. So like we get out of the restaurant, she runs to the car and she runs to that. And I was definitely that kind of kid, like a fast paced kid who had like this strong desire to move. But I do think sort of my comfort level taking risk was definitely something that developed over time. That, that I is, wasn't born with it. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't like a genetic thing. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute too, because it's it's definitely... It's definitely a question that I have about the champion's mindset. And I'm really glad just to, to just give you a little hint that you answered it that way. Yeah, I think it's mutable. That's what I'll say. Okay. It's Ooh, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good lawyer word. It is. <laughs> so <laughs> I have never been white water rafting for pleasure or for competition's sake. And I have only seen like the crazy stuff that I've seen on like television. And I also didn't know that it was even a sport, a sport. I knew about rowing, of course, but I didn't know it was a sport until I actually was doing some research on Kelly and I was just kind of, I was blown away by it. Okay. So how did you, first of all, can you describe what it is to people who are like whitewater rafting sport. This? I know. And then, and then how did you prepare mentally for that kind of a competition? Sure. Uh, I will start by saying, you know, and we call it extreme whitewater paddling and it is a total fringe sport. What it, what it involves is three different events, all of which always take place on like the sketchiest class five river you can imagine because that set the TV cameras up well to make fun television. Because, you know, if you're just paddling through some boring little river, it's not fun to watch on TV. So they would put the world championships and national championship events at these big sketchy rivers where, you know, all the sponsor logos would be on the bottom of the raft, if that tells you anything. (laughs) So so, uh, there's three events. There's a sprint, a slalom, and a downriver race. So the sprint is you do a head-to-head with another boat, You start at the top of a rapid that is so large that it makes your jaw fall on the ground. And it you just three, two, one, go. And you know, usually you start in the flat water pool above and it's just an outright sprint into the rapid. And often it's the kind of rapid where there's only one line. So there's not room for two boats to go down next to each other. So at some point, someone's got to give way, let the other boat go. And then you get to the pool at the bottom, outright sprint to the end. So that's the sprint event. Then there's a slalom event, which people may be more familiar with because there is whitewater slalom in the Olympics. Um, But it's the same concept. Huge, gigantic, ridiculous river where you need to go through downstream and upstream gates. So, you know, that's that's the most, I would say, most calm event because you do need to make progress through the river so the rapids aren't quite as big. And then there's something called the downriver. And this is just total chaos because they start all the teams. It's a mass start, 50 rafts. And you start in a huge pool, and then you need to make it from point A to point B, which is usually 12 miles downstream or 15 miles downstream. And you're, you're you know, navigating, you know, 25 or 40 huge Class 5 rapids, the kind of rapids that, like, on a normal trip, you would get out of your boat beforehand and spend, like, 45 minutes scouting the rapid before you meticulously picked your line and then went down. And in the downriver race, you just go. And no scouting, no stopping. You just go, you know, you're fighting, you're bumping off other rafts in rapids. I mean, it's just chaos. Um, 
But it is so fun and crazy. And, you know, I can't tell you the number no of... No wonder you like to take risks. I can't tell you the number of sketchy class five rapids all over the globe that I have swam because we flipped everywhere all the time. Um, and, you know, that's part of it. You know, in the downriver race, if you flip, you it's not like the race is over for you. You collect yourself, flip your boat back over and go. And you, you can even still win. I mean, we won a world championships having flipped halfway through the downriver race because guess what? So did everybody else at some point. Oh, my god! So it's just a matter of, like, who can recover, get back to the raft, get in the raft, and keep going again. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. This, this kind of tees up perfectly into this next kind of question, which is, which is both about how you prepare for it mentally, but also how you manage all of the variables. And so I just read this article recently that, and this is like a did you know thing, that the average play in the NFL lasts seven seconds. I didn't know that, but that's not long. <laughs> the average wad at CrossFit is probably 10 minutes, you know, 10, 12 minutes, something like that. And then that sprint race is, right. how, I mean, super short. Yeah, seven minutes, yeah, maybe so, four minutes. So even if it's a longer race, you still have to break up the different, you know, spans into little micro bursts. So, so when you, how do you prepare mentally for something like that and all of the different variables? How do you, like, how do you begin to even process that? Well, I'll start by saying there are a massive number of variables because I competed in five world championship events and all of them were in like a crazy third world country. You know, the first world championship I went to was on the Zambezi River in Africa. Um, You know, even to get down into the Zambezi River, you have, you know, like 50 porters carry all your stuff down. And mind you, you think you show up there thinking that you're an athlete and then you see the porters who carry your stuff down. And it's kind of embarrassing, actually, (laughs) because you're like, dude, these guys are actual athletes. But, you know, in order to get into the Zambezi, you have to climb down. It's almost a mile and a half straight down, climbing on these sketchy, like, ladders that have been twined together. And then, you know, that was just one of many. I mean, every world championship, we did one in Costa Rica. I did a second one in the Kalahari Desert in Africa. Kelly and I met in, on the Fudale Fu. We were just all over the place in third world countries. So just to start with, we're totally outside our comfort zone. You know, we're not like staying in some nice hotel, you know, where, where the, the environment to begin with is already kind of stressful. Um, one of our big strategies, and I think this helped with our mental game a ton, is we would always get to these events like two weeks early, mm. in part to get over jet lag, but in part because in order to be mentally prepared, you know, we were practicers. So we're like, you know, do it a bunch over and over again. So we would get there to whatever river, sometimes even three. Like we got to the Zambezi, we got there three weeks early just because we knew the hike in and hike out was super rigorous. Like we had to kind of get used to that. So we were there and spent weeks and weeks going down the river every single day and practicing and practicing. And the reason I tell you this is that 
that's how we were able to get into a mental state of like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. Because, you know, when we would show up at these places, I mean, we'd be nervous. Like, it was sketchy. You know, you're showing up and you're like, I have never seen this river before. I have to learn it. And not only do I need to get down this river, which for any normal person, just getting there down, it would be like an amazing accomplishment. We have to like own it and race down it. Right. Um, so I think for us, the biggest piece to our sort of mentally being able to wrap our heads around what we were doing was practice, 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 getting comfortable with the environment. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, just in any sport, now that I'm, as you're saying, I'm like, oh yeah, it totally makes sense because, you know, with the NFL, with, with the professional CrossFit athletes, even, even non-professional CrossFit athletes with world champion, white rodder paddlers, you're in this unfamiliar environment. You don't know what to expect, but all of the reps that you've had leading up to that moment right before the gun goes off gives you that healthy level of healthy balance of comfort and uncertainty that you need to take that class five. Right. And, you know, we're, of course, still nervous, but, you know, that, I mean, you know, adrenaline is an amazing thing, too, in terms of your ability to focus and kind of, you know, just wrap your head around what you're going to do and just be like, we're doing this. You know, the other thing I'd say, too, and I, I have a hard time describing what this is, and even understanding for myself what it means. But, and this may be more innate, like a genetic thing, but I do have, it's almost like an ability to like disassociate. And I don't know if it's because I did such a suffer sport like rowing, but I do have an ability to get in, whether it's a CrossFit workout or a workout, I do have ability to like mentally disassociate and just like gamer and suffer and focus. Um, and I watch it actually a lot when I watch the CrossFit games and the CrossFit, re- especially the regionals, because the regionals, you know, everybody at the CrossFit games is like amazing. And, and everybody at the regionals is amazing too, but there's more diversity. And the thing that I see in the regionals athletes that don't make it, it's their mental game. They all show up and they are like amazing physically, like to it, like every single one of them. But what you see is the ones who don't make it are the ones who, you know, there's a point where you see, oh, okay, that lady's one muscle up ahead of me. Can you disassociate from like your physical pain and strategize and say, I now need to push myself even farther than the plan I had so that I can surpass this person. And not everybody has that. Yeah. And that, I don't know whether that's innate or learned, but. Yeah, I was just going to say, because that goes back to the whole question before about our champions can champ- can the champion's mindset be taught and developed? Right. So maybe it's twofold. Maybe it's twofold. Yeah. Maybe like the elite champions that maybe there's just like a net, like maybe there's prodigy level champions. You have to be a gamer. I'm not sure how else to describe it, you know, with like a fancy vocabulary word. You need to be a gamer and not everybody is a gamer. Like not everybody is a competitor. Yeah. So it is interesting because I do think you're right. A lot of the mindset is probably mutable and there are probably are some characteristics of, you know, a champion or, you know, whoever, whatever sort of like very successful person has that is not mutable. Yeah. No, which makes sense because it's the same people all the time at the top. And like looking at the NFL, looking at all the professional, all of those people that are playing at that level are all champions and have been champions. But there's some people that even at that apex, they're at the the little tippy top. Right. You know, gamers and they're gamers. So I'm reading this book and I don't know if you've checked it out, but it's um, by Angela Duckworth. It's called grit. Grit. Yeah. So this, this conversation makes me think of this, right? Because you realize there's also that, 
You know, I mean, that's, it's less about athletes and more about people who are successful in life. It could be athletes or anything, but it's that sort of singular purpose and focus. And that, I think that part of it is more immutable. Yeah. And grit is, and you know, she talks about the whole grit scale and there's some people that have crazy amounts of grit. We all have some element of grit and we're not necessarily willing to tolerate more than we're desired to. Well, and I'm interested in that concept now because I'm pretty sure I have grit. Yeah. I really want my kids to have it, and I worry about them because I'm raising them in Marin County, California, which is could not be more of a bubble of, like, non-reality. So I'm, I, I'm particularly interested in this topic, topic right now because I'm like, I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to raise a gritty kid. Yeah, totally. No, I think it makes total sense. And I was just talking with somebody about, I have four kids, and uh, I was just talking to somebody about this very thing, and the, the, uh, the, the stand-up comedian Adam Carolla, I'm not sure if you've ever yes, heard Yes, I've heard of him. Um, he wrote a book, I'm pretty sure it was him who wrote it, called The Wussification of America. <laughs> and it's all I about need to read that. everybody gets a participation ribbon. I know, I know. You know and, and you're not, you don't learn the, the important lessons about how to lose. Yeah. I call it American Idol phenomenon because I, I was an um, early lover of American Idol. Did you audition? No, I never auditioned. I, <laughs> Kelly and I did audition for The Amazing Race one time, though, oh, but that's nice. a side story. But anyway, I call it American Idol phenomenon because what I saw watching American Idol was all these people show up and they try out and they actually think they are good singers. They don't oh, yeah. know they're not. And to me, what that shows is they were raised in an environment where someone told them they were awesome at something they were not awesome at. And I think that you're doing a real disservice to your kid. Like, I, it's really good to know, like, what you're good at and not good at so that you can focus your life and, like, do something you're good at. That, that reminds me of this one scene in American Idol where this, this, the mom, the daughter was auditioning, and she was awful. And her parents had told her that her whole life that she was a great singer. And even after she basically got laughed out of the room, they, she, she, was, she decided to sing in front of the cameras on the way out. Oh, no, to, I think maybe I saw this and, and it's and making the, and me cringe. It's like, making me cringe. The mom yes. is like rocking her head, you know? It's just like, oh. no, come on. I yeah, mean, so you, you, it's important for kids to know, you know, that it's, it's good to get like, it's good to like not make the team sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know what teaches them? Work. Yes. You know, you want to make resilience, that resilience, resilience, work for which it. is part of grit. You know, Jocko would say, I, I got cut from the team. He would say, good. That's yeah. what he would say. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with him on that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've faced your share of challenges. When I was getting ready for our interview, you not only have you faced challenges just as an athlete, because that's how athletes roll. They, they get to the top, they sink to the bottom and they work hard to get back up. But you've also battled cancer. And another thing that I thought was crazy too, how many kids do you guys have now? Two kids. Two kids. One of your kids was in the NICU. Yes. And you were, you had worked out all the way through your pregnancy, were in great peak condition. And, and then you went to zero and had to zero. start over again. Yes. You know, so like, let's, let's talk about adversity and how your mindset from all of this previous life experience equipped you to not only crush cancer and kick it in the, in the knees, but also to bounce back from, from going back to, to zero. Cause there's so many people that just quit. Yeah, know? it's hard. So, you know, it was really strange what I was diagnosed with cancer my, uh, September of my junior year of uh, college. And that's actually why I only rode for two years because I was diagnosed with cancer. And it was a very strange experience because I was 20 years old and 
I was not sick. So I not only was not sick, I was like really not sick. You know, I was training twice a day as a rower. I'd been doing that for seven years. I was young. I felt vibrant and vital. I was a college student. I was super stoked. Um, So to get that diagnosis of cancer, and I actually think it's not that uncommon. You know, there's quite a few different kinds of cancer you get where you actually don't feel sick at all. So all of a sudden you go from being like totally not sick to like everyone treats you like you're sick. And you're like, wait, I'm not sick. Like, I don't feel sick. And uh, so so that derailed me a little bit. I mean, I actually barely took any time off of college, but I did have to take a week off to get a big surgery. I had over Christmas vacation, I got radiation. It took me a couple of years to kind of get my thyroid levels back in order. And, you know, this may sound cliche, but I will say that getting cancer at a young age like that really taught me to like just be stoked to be alive and like enjoy this journey. And I do, I mean, I feel this like immense, like I honestly sometimes wake up and I'm like, and it sounds silly, but I wake up, I'm like, I'm still alive. Like, this is awesome. And so that, I think, really kind of changed the way I viewed things at a really young age. I think a lot of people get to that point of feeling that sense of, like, appreciation and gratitude, but sometimes it's not till later in life. Um, So to learn that at 20, I think, has been pretty awesome and also has, you know, shaped some of my decisions, you know? I mean, I always kind of knew I wanted to go to law school, but if I hadn't had cancer, I'm pretty sure I just would have gone, like, college, law school. Mm-hmm. And instead, I was like, oh, hell no. I'm going to go, like, try this whitewater paddling thing. I'm going to travel all over the world and go to every single continent except for Antarctica and, like, fill up my passport and go do a bunch of stuff, and then I'm going to go to law school. And I'm pretty sure if I hadn't had cancer that, you know, that wouldn't have happened. Now, I also bugs me when people who have cancer just talk about it, how it was, like, great and awesome and, like, changed their life for the positive. Like, it fucking sucked. I'm sorry. That's the one time I'll say the F word on your podcast. (laughs) It was not fun. And, you know, it has been a lifelong challenge to keep my thyroid. I had thyroid cancer. It's a lifelong challenge to keep my thyroid levels in order. Um, It's it's an ongoing thing. So it's, it's definitely been a challenge, but I think overall it has impacted me in a super positive way. And then the second the second sort of big sketchy health thing that happened to me is I had with my second daughter a thing called placenta previa. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. so you've heard of it. Yeah, it's bad. I ended up having to have nine blood transfusions before, during, and after my daughter was born, including one that Kelly and I actually laugh about to this day because, like, we probably twisted people, but... I had just had a C-section and I moved into this room and I'm under all these weird like electric blankets because I'm so cold. And the other thing is I was so freaking thirsty. And I said to Kelly at this time, I was like, dude, I see why all those guys in those Vietnam movies are so thirsty because I mean like, so at least I was that conscious to have this. But I think they, my blood pressure was so low, they thought that I was going to stroke out. So the, the nurses were literally pushing cold blood like out of the IV bag. Normally they warm it up and they let it drip. They were just pushing it into my system. So unfortunately I was able to keep my sense of humor even in that dark moment. <laughs> yeah. um, and then because our daughter had been born six weeks early, she was in the NICU. And that was pretty traumatizing because I think as a culture, we do a pretty bad job of dealing with pretty much anything but positive things, right? Like around babies, like, No one knows what to do or say. Like, unless your baby comes out, like, healthy and perfect and it was this beautiful birth and everybody's happy and it was, like, this wonderful, beautiful home birth experience. Like, people literally don't know what to say. So that's an awkward experience to have where people are like, oh, your kid's in the NICU. Like, is it an emergency? Is everything fine? Like, how do we support you? You know, no one really knows what to do because we've done a bad job as a culture of setting people up to, you know, and and a lot of people have this experience. And so, so that was really hard and just not expected. And, you know, again, I'd been crossfitting like up till 
two days. And, you know, I went to work at the law firm the day that I was admitted to the hospital. So, you know, I was like right up to the thing, training the whole time. And then, you know, between having a C-section and losing three quarters of the blood in my body, I mean, my hematocrit was like 14 and most people's hematocrit is like 45. So, I mean, I was jacked. So it obviously took me a long time to recover. Um, And the low moment I will tell you is when I was finally kind of recovered enough was probably eight weeks after all this where I felt like I could even try to work out. And I just went down to do a push-up and I fell to the ground and I did not, I could not push myself back up. Not a single push-up. And I remember being like, oh my God, it's on. Like I have, I have zero, zero strength, zero fitness, like nothing. But you know, I actually was like, all right, here we go. Like, yeah. I've got to you start had a baseline. somewhere. <laughs> baseline. And it was bad. It was a bad baseline. So I knew that, like, all I could do was go up. And fortunately, I had already been CrossFitting before the pregnancy. So I was pretty sure that I, I was already following, like, an effective training program. I knew how to eat. And I will tell you that I was pretty proud that literally, like, almost two years to the, a little sooner than two years to the day my daughter was born, I competed at the CrossFit Games. Oh, On wow. a team, but still, yeah. I was at the CrossFit Games. And yeah. I was like, going from literally not being able to do a single pull-up to like two years later competing at the CrossFit Games in Carson was like a big deal for That's me. That's amazing. That was like a great, I felt very stoked about Had you that. guys started San Francisco CrossFit yes. at that point? Yeah. So, so you had already st- left the law firm? And, yeah. Okay. So we started in, uh, we started San Francisco CrossFit casually in 2004 and officially in 2005. Yeah. And so going back to the whole cancer thing, I mean, like, the fact that you were stoked on life, that probably empowered you to just say, oh yeah, okay, I'm making 250 grand, maybe 300,000 with bonuses. But you know what? If I, if I, if I, bail out on this thing, like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Nothing. Right. I'm still alive. And you're exactly right. I mean, I hadn't even thought it through, but that was actually really part of my calculus was I looked forward and I I actually, one of the big things for me is I was looking at all these people ahead of me, you know, partners and people who had been practicing, they were 50 years old. And they're miserable. Yes. And I was like, I don't want to be like, I'm not, there was not literally a single person who was like, I want to be like that guy. And I was like, life is too short. Life is too short. I want to have time to hang out with my kids and do something that I'm passionate about. And like, life is too short. Have you read the book, The Last Lecture? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. And I've seen the video yeah. and I just sit there and like oh, weep and cry. And Everybody I'm just like, go oh, buy that book. It's oh, super short and you can watch his YouTube amazing. video. Very powerful, but it speaks exactly to what Juliet was just talking about. It's super powerful. Yeah, it's, I, I 100% share that recommendation. What are the top lessons that you've learned from your experience as an athlete that you now apply to your entrepreneurial journey? I mean, some of it is stuff that I've already discussed, you know, being a pro, showing up on time, being professional in basic things like emails, um, the ability to take risk and pivot, um, also the ability to deal with adversity. I mean, I, I think one thing that's maybe not discussed enough in the entrepreneurial world world is it's hard and stressful to be an entrepreneur. You know, sometimes when you reach a level of success, there's jealousy and backstabbing. And, you know, there can be a lot of like human dynamics that are hard to deal with that I think I didn't of course, if I thought it through, I would have known because we're all humans, but there's, there's, there's challenges and stress and, you know, you have mo- 
times where you're just crushing it and other times where you're like, are we going to be able to make payroll? And, you know, it's a real up and down, I think. And I'd be surprised if it wasn't like that for every entrepreneur. And so I think that ability to be able to deal with the adversity and be able to see beyond that and say, okay, like we may be having a difficult period, but, you know, we know we're going to be on the upward trajectory now, I think helps me immensely because it's emotional. And partly because I think when you're an entrepreneur, you really care in, in a different way about what you're doing. So when you have failures, it's like even harder. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think that it's the same thing as an athlete because you're just so emotionally invested and, and you've got all these variables. And as an entrepreneur, this is your baby and you've got all these other different kinds of variables and you have to follow a similar process to, to make sure that you're equipped and prepared and able to overcome that that adversity, but also learn how to how to win. Right, growth mindset. Yeah, that's another thing mindset. I'm really into. You know, Carol Dweck. Have you read her book? No, mindset. But, but yeah, but I it's on my list. I have it on my list. But yeah, I mean, I think I think the resilient. I think these are all such connected ideas, right? Resilience, ability to deal with adversity, risk, having a growth mindset. I think all those things are so mission critical to being able to sort of manage this entrepreneur life. So I want to test out a new question that I just thought about uh, on the way here. And it's an, it's like an, it's, it's, I'm going to say two words and I want you to choose which one you identify with and elaborate on why. Okay. okay? So the, the first word is accomplisher. The second word is doer. I would say accomplisher. Okay. Caveat on that. Sometimes being an entrepreneur, I feel like all I'm doing is being a doer. But because my brain is always focused on being an accomplisher, that's more where my head's at. Okay. And, you know, and I think by being an accomplisher, it's, it's like having long-term vision and goals and trying to plan what you're going to do to get there. Um, I think, and, and certainly we're all guilty of this, I think in any business you can get stuck in that sort of doer mentality where you're just like checking off your emails and doing the basics and not having the vision, the yeah. future vision. Yeah. So to me, if you have future vision and a plan and a goal that you're working towards, that's more of an accomplisher. Yeah, and that's totally. who I hope I am and am trying to be. And there, there's not like a right or a wrong answer. It's just kind of how you, you are because then you have to surround yourself with the other people who are primarily doers, right? That, right. So you could go out and, and be the visionary and, and accomplish the big goals and dreams and then have somebody else who's hammering the nails so that you can go out and continue to build the structure. Yes. You know? And you know, that's one of, and I would say one of my own personal failings in the entrepreneur world is uh, getting stuck doing the doing because I feel like I do the doing the best. That's been a pitfall for me. And what that means is that it was really hard for me to sort of let go at certain points in our trajectory and be able to pass off um, projects and jobs and actually hire people to help. You know, that's been a process for me because, you know, I'm super efficient, I'm fast, I think quickly, and it was hard for me to let go and think, oh, okay, well, what I could do in five hours might take someone that works for me 10 hours, and that has to be okay because otherwise I'm stuck all the time in a doer phase. Yeah, because you're still doing five hours of work that it might take somebody 10 hours to do, but your five hours is worth... 4 right. X, right. you know. So that's been a really big process of learning for me. It was hard for me to let go and admit that 
I that my skills are better on the accomplisher side than on the doer side. Ooh, I, I like that. I lend way more value to our businesses by doing that than yeah. doing the doer. Yeah. Oh, I like. I, I I love that I fit that question in. That's awesome. I'm just giving myself a little yeah pat props. on the back. You know. <laughs> in your mind, as you think about this new journey, which isn't that new, but it's still new. You know, in terms of what you guys are are accomplishing and have are planning for the future. What is the best outcome for you? Business-wise? Business-wise, life, whatever. You know, Kelly and I have uh, always started our businesses based on things we were passionate about and excited about. The gym and Mobility Wad both fall into that category. We didn't, like, decide we want to start a business and be entrepreneurs and make money and write business plans. Like, we didn't do any of that. We liked CrossFit. We want to create a place for our friends to train. We start our gym. We realized there was a huge hole in understanding about movement and mechanics and mobility. We start Mobility Wad. So that's kind of been, you know, the way we've started our businesses. If Kelly and I had a business plan, our business plan would be our 30,000-foot business plan is to create a life for ourselves so we can spend more time with our family and recreating because that's what we love to do. Um, so that's our ultimate business plan. My personal goal, and I think Kelly shares this, is that we would love to use our 40s and early 50s to just continue to work our tails off so that we don't have to work so hard for the rest of our lives. And, and I'll tell you that we're both workers. So Kelly and I are never going to like turn it off, get in our lazy boys and be doing nothing. That's not the kind of people we are. But, but we also would love to get to a point where we can, you know, have the financial resources to be able to make some different decisions. And if we want to go set up shop in Africa and Kelly does like volunteer physical therapy somewhere, like that would be rad if we had the time and space to do that kind of thing. So I think that's sort of what we're, we're gunning for, you know? And, you know, in, in the shorter term goals, I mean, I think we want to continue to make mobility wide, you know, this sort of like one-stop shop and make it more accessible for people to really be a tool for people to understand their bodies and figure out other ways and avenues that we can get that message out to people. You know, like one of the things we've done recently that we spend a ton of time on is create what we've called MWOD Institute. We're trying to create a host of courses for coaches and athletes and PTs and, you know, um, and create an environment, some online, some live where people can learn. So we're just trying to figure out how we can take what is our core message and deliver it to people in different ways. And that's a shorter term goal, but really, you know, the long-term goal is like, how can we, you know, Kelly and I have this fantasy of getting, we're obsessed with sprinter vans. With what vans? Sprinter vans. Oh, sprinter vans, yeah. Camping sprinter vans. Yeah, yeah. And we like spend our weekends searching for them on the <laughs> internet. And um, we have this fantasy that when we drop our youngest daughter, Caroline, off at college, we're going to like take our sprinter van and like, drive off into the sunset and like park our sprinter band for like a month in Yosemite or something. So, you know, this is our ultimate vision and goal is that, you know, we want to be able to spend more time outside, more time like hiking and biking and riding our mountain bikes and paddling, camping and being on the water, which is what we love. Yeah. And you know, that's goes back to the whole importance of having a vision because if you didn't have a vision of the future, if you didn't have some things written down, you wouldn't even have an idea of what the possible outcome could be. Yeah, what are we doing here? What's yeah, the point of you know, all this? And, and there's this great proverb that I, that I love, and it's, it says that uh, people without vision will perish. You know? And that's why like, it's so hard you know, like, just going through life, just plugging along and not having a, a vision for something that's better than who you are today. Because I believe that we're all created for greatness. I totally agree. And you know, you're in a world where you're trying to set people up for that, right? You know, and you're 
in your financial advising role. I mean, to me, that's a huge step for anyone who, you know, like to the extent that part of our long-term vision is to have time and space to be creative and do things where we don't need to make money, you know, like part of that is having the tools and having the people around us to help us create that vision. Yeah, absolutely. And you're doing that yeah. for people. No, it's, it's powerful. It's a good reminder. Yeah, you know? you're doing that for people. I, I That's a huge that. deal. Thank you. Thank you. So right now, speaking of the proverb, uh, uh, people without vision will, will perish. There are men and women right now that are listening to this episode, this conversation that we're having, and they may have been a champion in the past, you know? And maybe they're, they're in that pursuit of, of being a champion right now, but they're in a slump and they're not, you know, they're taking swings, but nothing's just happening. What would you say to them to help them get out of that slump? Well, I, I think that to be a champion, you have to be doing something that you're interested in. And I'll tell you that sometimes I hate the word passion. I feel like oh, it's I an overused that. word. Yeah. Um, I don't think... I think passion is like overrated. I think it's just a really simple idea of interest. I think if people can identify what they're just basically interested in and whether that's what they're actually doing for work or whether they like to play the violin on the side or whether they have some kind of athletic pursuit, you know, I'm not actually of the mind that I I don't think it's realistic that everybody is going to do something that they're interested in or passionate about work-wise. I think that Actually, that's like a bill of goods that's been sold to us by like an Oprah Winfrey culture <laughs> that I'm not a fan of. Yeah. You know, like Oprah Winfrey isn't like, not everybody is going to get to do what Oprah Winfrey does or have the ability or the lead up or whatever she had. And I think actually what that causes is a lot of people to feel depressed, you know, because guess what? It's actually okay to do a job that you're really good at. Yeah. That's equally as valuable as someone doing something that they're quote unquote passionate about. So to me, I think whether it's in your work life or in your personal life, I think people have got to find something that they're interested in, whether that's passionate or just interest and cultivate that, you know, focus on it, cultivate it, because that's what's going to ultimately bring people joy, in my opinion. I think that uh, words matter and, and even more than than the fact that words matter, the proper understanding of words matter. And you as an attorney yes. can appreciate this. I get a this. little crazy about okay? it. Okay. So I think <laughs> that the reason people hate the word passion is because they don't understand its real meaning. Yeah. So the actual root word of, of passion, the etymological origin of passion means being willing to suffer. Right. And so in the entrepreneurial circles, we, we get this like glitzy, glamoury, you know, spray on gold version of, of right. which of isn't passion. what it means at all. You know, it's not what it means at all. And most people don't experience that. So, you know, that's a one percenter kind of thing. One percent of people experience, well, it's not even right. Passion still isn't that when you look at the true definition. I still think most people, especially professionally, don't experience this like aha moment of like joy because they're doing something that like is so exciting to them that they like, that's not reality for most people. I mean, you know, I I don't know very many people that have that, but you know, for me, for example, I am really interested in what I do. I'm interested in being better at it. I work really hard. I read a ton about it. I try to be a student of my own work. And to me, that is very fulfilling which is ultimately, I think, what we're all looking for, right? Whether it's in a personal pursuit. You know, if I was still practicing law right now, 
you know what? I think I'd still be happy because maybe my actual law practice wouldn't be what gives me that kind of joy, but I'm quite sure that I would have cultivated an, an outside interest, whether that's CrossFit or whether I'd be playing an instrument or right. whatever. Yeah. Because I think I've always inherently known that like what brings me joy is like focusing on something that interests me. If there's one thing that you want people to remember from our conversation today, what would it be? I, I think it would be, you know, sort of the value of taking risks. Um, I think, I, I think I would also add, and I think this connects to our last conversation. I think sometimes people get a little siloed and don't get out of their comfort zone. And you know, people don't need to go become an extreme whitewater paddler to take a risk. I mean, you know, taking a risk could just be saying, "Hey, you know, I've really been interested in learning how to play the piano." And I'm going to sign myself up for piano lessons. I mean, I'm talking about that kind of risk. I think people need to really get into a space more often in their life where they're a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that that really brings, like, it makes you feel alive. So, you know, I think it can be in very small ways. It doesn't need to be skydiving or doing some of the classic stuff. I think people can take little risks in small ways and reap great rewards. Mm, very powerful advice. Juliet, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It was a very powerful conversation. I learned a lot. It's been a real treat visiting with you. And I know that the audience is going to take away so much from the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to talk to you. Absolutely. Juliet, you are a champion. Thank you for helping us become champions and develop the champion's mindset. Your stories, especially the stories about overcoming adversity and going on to accomplish great things are incredibly valuable and applicable to each and every one of us. If you, my friends, missed any of the key points from our conversation, we've got you covered. Visit theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 34 for all the key points and highlights of the conversation Juliet and I had. And while you're there, be sure to support our sponsors, the Lawton Marketing Group and Unstuck Life Courses. We are truly blessed to have them. And I want you to join the conversation and continue talking about the champion's mindset over at our private Facebook group. And you can join that by going to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash group and opting in there to join that group. Thank you, Cody and the Podcast Masters team for helping me produce a quality show. Until next time, go make an impact.